0: Good morning, good morning, loving the, good morning team, glad all the conversations, if you haven't met me, I am Pastor Corey, I'm over the college ministry here, if we haven't met, I would love to meet you, have a conversation with you after the service at any point, if you want to talk about the sermon, whether how good it was or how bad it was, we can talk about that too, it's okay, and so for those of you who I know, good morning, it's nice to see you again. But we have been going through the Easter Tide season, which is, that's like 50 days. And so it's a period from Easter to Ascension Day. And so what we're doing is the Easter after the resurrection. This is a series that we're going through. And so what we're doing is looking at these snapshots of Jesus during the 40 days before the Ascension. So this is right after the resurrection. So this sermon basically is like a prequel to last week's sermon. So if you want to go back and listen, or listen to this and then listen to that, it don't matter. This is, but this is a prequel. And so Spencer talked a lot about doubt and deconstruction last week. Using really the, Thomas, one of the disciples, I ain't going to say what he said. I can't say doubt Thomas, that's not his title. But much of us are like Thomas. And to be completely honest, even today, and if you look at that 40-day period, much of us are like Thomas. It's not just Thomas who doubts, but pretty much all the disciples who doubt. And so let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, we thank you for this space. Lord, we thank you for this time. We ask that you be here. Help us to lean into your words, lean into your presence, lean into your goodness. Lord, I pray that you just spur us on in this room to acknowledge that you are here, that Holy Spirit that you would fan a flame, that our hearts will burn within us. Lord, have your way. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven in this space today, this morning, with us. We ask this in your name, amen. You watch TV or TV series or movies, come on, I know. Pretty much everybody in here watching some TV, whether it's like white noise in the background or you're either super invested. Isn't it not annoying, though? Like you're in the scene, like you're you're on the couch, bed, wherever you are, and you're just sitting there and you're like super invested. You're like into the, the story that's going on. You've been in probably a couple of seasons. You're a few episodes in and you're just like, you know, everybody by name, you know, their passions, you know, what they do, their jobs, you know, their personalities, like, you just that invested in each character in this series that you're watching. But, like, you're sitting there, and the scene's building the whole time. You're, like, maybe on the edge of your bed or on your couch, wherever you are again, watching some TV, and you're just, like, on the edge, and it's building up, building up, and building up, and the next thing you know, it's a black screen. And then people's names, and it's the credits. Isn't that not frustrating? Like you'd be so invested in this story or this TV show, especially an episode that they've been building on, and you've been like anticipating the whole time, and you're like, here we are, here we go, and then they like, ooh, cliff finger. And then the other annoying thing that they're doing is that you could just binge watch everything. But guess what? Now you gotta wait a week. You literally gotta wait a week to watch the next episode. So it really puts you in a bad spot. A bad spot. You're just sitting there waiting, thinking about it. Any other like like people who enjoy Chosen in here? Come on, come on. Let's let's talk about it. If you're not watching Chosen, you need to think about it. (laughs) I have probably cried every episode in Chosen. It is well done. It is super good, very genuine, and just just it's all it's really put together. It's super good. It Just goes through obviously Jesus. And the disciples and their stories and different perspectives and all this other stuff. But what's funny about Chosen is that you can actually binge watch it. Like, you can watch every episode. There's three seasons. You can do it maybe three days. Some of you are like, bet two. You know, like, you can watch it in a couple days. But what's funny is, like, after I got at the end of season three, what incredible. Last episode. Again, go watch it. You know, it guts off, and I'm just sitting there like kind of like sad. I'm like, dang, man, I ain't got another season to watch. But we know the gospel. We know the story. But there's something about it that like pulls you in. And you're like, man, what's 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 gonna happen next? What's gonna happen next? And this is the same thing that we're coming to in this moment where we're gonna kind of rewind time. A little bit, and instead of going down the Romans road today, we're going down the Emmaus road today. And so we're gonna look almost it's do our best to look through the perspective of the disciples in this story, in this narrative, to kind of get a glimpse like Jesus is dead to their knowledge, and you're just sitting there like, Man, you you've seen the miracles, you've seen everything that's happened. You've been at everything for three years straight, every part, every place, every moment. And now you're just kind of like, man, what do we do? What happens next? Like, what's what are we going to do? And we're like looking and leaning into that. So we're going to like sit and wait and even just wonder what is going to happen next. If you have your Bible, we're going to be looking at Luke 24, 28 through 35. If you don't have your Bible, we have it on the screen for you. I'll be reading through the ESV extra spiritual version um, today, this morning. And so I'll give you guys a couple seconds to get there for those who have the Bibles. Start in verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. Jesus. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at a table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and gathered together to go to return to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Word of, this is the word of the Lord. So before we actually dive into this particular passage, I want to kind of set the scene for the part that was before this. So right before this passage, you see Jesus, who in the eyes of these disciples is a stranger. They can't see him. As the text would say, their eyes were not open. And so this, where they started was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem and they are traveling about seven to eight miles to this village called Emmaus. So this whole is a whole day's worth of journey. So just set in your mind that all day long they're having a conversation until they arrive to Emmaus. So they're going down the road, and then what's funny is that Jesus comes in is that he just walks up on the scene, and he sees these two disciples, and it, like their, their body language and the way they looked seemed like they were just sad, depressed, or just something heavy on their hearts. And he asked, what's wrong? And they look at Jesus, well, the stranger, and said, how have you not heard at Jerusalem about this man named Jesus, who was like mighty in word and deed? And we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We hoped that he would be the one. We hoped that he was the Messiah who was to come. And then they had these blown expectations. They received word prior, right before this conversation, that the tomb was empty. These women went running to the tomb and it was empty and then the disciples decided they want to go check it out for themselves. And they get to the tomb to only confirm that indeed it is empty. There is no body found. There's no one there. And this is where Jesus, a.k.a. Stranger, interjects into the conversation. And he speaks up and calling attention to their failure to orient themselves fully around the prophets and the teachings of the prophets and Moses. He starts expounding on the Hebrew scriptures and interpreting because they could not conceive that a Messiah crucified, dead, and buried, and they could not accept that he had been raised by God. Recognizing Jesus as a resurrected Christ required recognizing that Jesus had to die according to God's plan. So what's going on in this moment is these disciples have a distorted perception plus misguided assumptions, which equal failed expectations. So basically their perception of the Messiah was supposed to be one who comes in and takes down Roman tyranny that was happening, the bondage that was on the Israelite people, instead of a colt, he was supposed to come in on a horse. Instead of holding a sword, he was supposed to hold a staff. He was, or instead of a staff, he was holding a sword. Instead of wearing robes and linens, he was supposed to be wearing battle attire. Instead of going to the cross, he was supposed to be going right to the kingdom to flip it over. That's what they were expecting. But that's not what the scripture said. These are Hebrew people. They know way better than us. They know the Bible, the first five, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible by heart. They can, you can just say, hey, where's this? And they can tell you and recite it from there on. However, they still missed the point. And this is where Jesus comes into the conversation And he starts to expound and show them they did have a disordered perception. And because of that, they were off a line. So their assumptions create this unexpected expectation that was never met. And so Jesus doesn't even overwhelm them by some spectacular revelation or some moment where like fire comes down from heaven. But he's having a simple conversation because he doesn't want to impose faith on them. He doesn't want to force something upon them. Instead, he takes the scripture and interprets them with him at the center. They needed to hear the word of God to clear up the confusion of their own words. They needed to hear the word of God to clear up their own confusion, pointing out if a person does not believe Moses and the prophets, they would not believe someone is raised from the dead. So as we learned not too long ago about speaking truth to one another, here is a moment where Jesus is sharing with us. As he spoke truth to them, he brings it to where we are today. And here's the thing. We don't have to be there in their time to think the same questions or even feel the same way. And also what is true is that we don't have to be there in that time to experience the same thing. We can experience this today. So as we get into the passage, if you look at verse 28 through 29, he says, so they drew near to the village, which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. He acted. Does this seem strange? Doesn't this seem a little weird? that Jesus be acting? Like, why are you acting out here? Like, this seems out of character. Like, this ain't the Jesus I read in my bedtime stories as a kid. Like, why is he acting? This doesn't seem right. Like, he, he's doing something different. So Jesus was going to walk forward, as the scripture says, and he would have if they didn't ask him to stay. He would have kept going. He would have kept moving. But they pressed him not to stay. And as mine says, in the extra spiritual version, it says they urged him to stay. Some other translations like NIV says they constrained him, unwilling to let him leave, to part with a person who, again, is a stranger. That conversation captivated them so deeply, they did not want him to leave. They did not want him to leave, and they begged him not to go no further, but to abide, to hang out, to dwell with them. But they said it was towards evening. There's a couple other examples where their language is kind of seems odd, but if you look at Mark 6 48, this is a moment when Jesus was walking on water. You see the disciples go on a boat, Jesus stays to pray. Later on, as waters are getting crazy, there's a storm going on, and you see that in the text it says, He meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. Oh, interesting didn't see that before, that he meant to pass by. It was only when the disciples cried out because they thought it was a ghost. And then the whole moment happened where he came to them. There's another moment when, there's plenty of them, but here's another one, where there's a blind man right outside of Jericho. In the beginning of the verse, in Mark 10, 46, yeah. It says, Jesus, he was leaving. Leaving. It gives no indication that Jesus was going to this blind man. This blind man was on the edge of the street, yelling and screaming, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. With the crowd right beside him saying, bro, he has no time for you. Why are you even talking? You're blind. There's probably some sin in your life that happened in your family that caused you to be blind. He has no time for you. But he kept crying out, Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on me. Son of David, And the next thing, he's blind. He's being called out. And he gets right in front of Jesus. And the first words he hears is, What do you want me to do for you? There's another moment with Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. In this moment, he was going, he heard Jesus was coming through. And Zacchaeus, being a short man, and I understand, ran ahead. He said, I got to take advantage of something, so I'm going to climb a tree. So he climbs a tree to just get a glimpse of Jesus. He wants to just look at the man he is hearing about the man of miracles, the man of healing, the man of transforming people. That's who he wants to see. There's this Wesleyan pastor that we know really well who, even last week, said his name is Spencer Lohman. He said. <laughs> <laughs> to take advantage. Jesus is in a constant position of invitation. Look, look, I've been thinking about this for too long. I was like, no one's done it yet, so I got to be the first one to do it. And so that was awesome. I had to take advantage. But at the same time, what he said is very true, that Jesus is in a constant position of invitation, constant position. Here's the thing, We want Jesus to be around, but no one's calling him out to us. You want him here, but why are you not asking him? Jesus is clearly on a mission. He has things that need to be done. So to you and I, it seems like an interruption, but to him, he's just waiting for an invitation. To us, it's interruptions, but he's God. He sees everything. It's just an invitation, and he wants his child to interact with him. But you have to interact He's always in a constant position of invitation. This is what we see with Jesus, even in this. He doesn't pretend to go on down the road, but he would have. He would have if they had not urged him to stay. Like they were urging him. They were compelled. They were captivated. They were just engrossed by this conversation. So they urged him to accept their hospitality. And it makes it clear that only those who desire his company will come to further realization of his identity. The followers craved to hear more. They couldn't help. I get, their cup was overflowing. But they wanted more. They wanted more. and They empathetically invited him to stay with them. So caring for the needs of this stranger with a meal results in these men being changed profoundly by him. And you may be thinking, when's the last time I was so deeply moved by Jesus that I was urging him to stay? I was just like, please stay. Over the past few weeks, as I was processing this, this is the one thing that would not leave my mind because I'm just as guilty, deeply, deeply convicted by this because there's so many times in all honesty where I could probably reflect on that I just would have let him walk down the road. I'm like, hey, see you. Keep on doing what I was doing. When's the last time you just said, Jesus, not out of a state of emergency. We're good at that. Just saying in your mundane, normal day life, stay. Will you stay with me? Be with me. Set my hospitality, my invitation, that you're so big of a God, but yet you want to be right here with me, that you want to stay with me. If you look in verses 31 or 30 through 31, we keep going on where it says, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Last time we saw Jesus was when he was having a meal with his disciples. And then right after his resurrection, we find him doing yet the same thing again, having a meal and breaking some bread. So many scholars believe that, you know, this meal occurs around 3 p.m., which is the ninth hour, and this timing corresponds with Luke's, with Luke using this allusion as a literary device. Creating a parallel with the symbolism of time and ritual throughout the Jewish customs. It means that Jesus first appeared to these disciples at noonday. The moment the sun is at its zenith, which is the high point of the day. Which would fit the biblical motif of God revealing his glory in that moment. Full glory, resurrected Son at the type of the high point of the day is having a conversation with these two disciples. And so this meal that occurs coincides with the evening sacrifice of the forgiveness of the sins of the people, with which the gospel narrative, as if you go to the very first chapter of Luke, it starts with this man named Zachariah doing this incense portion, where it's this like pleasing aroma that goes to the Lord as they're in the temple. But then you get to see this again, but the pleasing aroma of Jesus on the cross. So we have these two moments where this is a representation of forgiveness, where you see that the disciples at that same hour could travel back to Jerusalem and arrive before sunset, before the next day begins, according to the Hebrew um, traditional practice. But yet the glory of Jesus appeared to them at the high point of the day, before sunset as a sign of forgiveness. So in all glory, and as this whole day goes on, they end this conversation at sunset when they could have went back to get forgiveness. But the price was already paid, and he was right there with them. Said, you are forgiven. Just him being there was a representation of forgiveness. Him being present was all of his glory was with these disciples. This is what Luke's talking about. And so as this continues with the, the meal, it was at the, t- at the table where Jesus was heard and where his presence experienced and encountered most intimately was at the table. So they came into the place, they're preparing the meal. They're coming together, disciples, they're getting the space put together, they're to tidying up, you know, making some bread and some other stuff that they made. So they're gathering around the table and finally sent together to eat. And Jesus did something not really normal to the customary ways of their times and actually not really normal to our ways at this time. He took the bread, blessed it, and gave it to them. In this action, Jesus reversed the role of being a guest to being the host. He took the bread and blessed it and has now the head of the table, the master of the home. Master of the home becomes Jesus, which is always a gateway for revelation. He postured himself in a way so they can receive something from him. He took over. He's like, no, I'm gonna be the, ma- I'm gonna be the master. I'm gonna be the host. Let me have the bread and let me break it. And he gets the bread and their eyes were opened. And they knew him. Just imagine for a second here. You're sitting down at a table with food that you prepared, whatever that be. You're this person you don't really know that well. And he decides to take over your conversation. And you're like, okay, strange. And so this conversation keeps happening. And he's like, let me bless the food. He takes the food and he blesses it when you open your eyes, you see Jesus. Literally see Jesus. That is exactly what happened with these two men. They literally saw Jesus. I mean, just think for yourself for a moment, if that was you, like, this would be insane. You can't even put words. Like, you can't even describe this. But here, there is the voice, the blessing, maybe even the sign of some pierced hands as he sat at the table. What is deeply significant here is that when our heart is fully yielded over to Jesus, it is the moment he becomes near and the eyes of our hearts are opened. This was the epitome of a sacred moment. Jesus' presence and blessing made the final, this meal sacramental. For his presence elevates any ordinary any ordinary moment. So as we see, the light finally turns on for these disciples. It comes on, and they recognize Jesus, the catalyst being the instance of this bread being broke. For whatever reason, God waited until this moment to choose this time for their eyes and hearts to be open to his true identity. And there's several commentators that note that this these verbs used for the disciples, eyes being kept from recognizing is that being open to recognize him are the are divine passives, meaning that God is the one who is controlling their ability to recognize Jesus. He's the one in control. He is the one who is setting the scene. But we would still sit here and be like, man, what's going on? So that he opened their eyes and they saw Jesus, seeing the son of God resurrected before them see Jesus at the table happening after he explained the scripture to them showing them what had happened to the Messiah and then he's gone and they're left with awe and wonder as causing their hearts to burn so you see in verse 32 it says did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us while he opened the scripture to us. We would ask the question, why doesn't Jesus reveal himself in the beginning? Like why would you you know, I feel like that would be an easier route. Is it right at the start of the conversation, Jesus reveals himself, we have a real incredible moment, and then we go to the disciples that are already in Jerusalem, not go 7 miles out of our way all day long having a conversation. Then him reveal himself. And then we decide to go all the way back to Jerusalem, eight miles again. Don't we often think that way with our own selves and our own lives, where we can think better than what Jesus would do for us, or the ways that he does it, and how he would teach us, and the way he shapes us and molds us usually is a longer route. (laughs) The route that we wouldn't choose for ourselves, we want the quick and easy, and change instantly. But that is not what he's doing here. And it seems, we, it's, it's the funny thing is, as they're walking, it says, you know, we could be walking beside Jesus and still not see him. Like we could be going down the road. This whole conversation that they're having with a stranger, they're actually having with Jesus, but they don't recognize him. They're literally having a conversation with him. You and I could be having a conversation with him and not even see We could be doing our own life and doing the same things and want a certain thing, but Jesus is trying to lean us into the right way. And we might not even see it. St. Augustine says when people choose to withdraw from far from a fire, the fire continues to give warmth, but they grow cold. When people choose to withdraw from the light, the light continues to be bright in itself, but they're in darkness. This is also the case when people withdraw from God. When you or we walk from the fire. So there's desert seasons in our life where we don't have the same flame that we once had or wish we had. Life seems to not be so vibrant as before, doling out everything that our heart already doesn't have, taking out what's left, and everything seems to be going wrong, all the stuff adding up, Everything getting heavy on our souls and coming to nothing. If this is you or has been you, there's something I want to make clear. When we are in these kinds of seasons, moments, spaces, it could be that God is actually so close, you just ain't accustomed to having him that close, actually. His nearness seems foreign. We become comfortable when he's actually at a distance. We get comfortable when he's a little further out because his holiness isn't changing us. That we're like on the branch, so the fire's over there, and we're just right over here where it's just between warm and cold. Where we're close enough, but it's not that hot, but you're over here far away where you don't really feel it. Where you're in this neutral zone, in this space where... It just seems foreign when he actually gets close. You get in a place in your life where you're like, Jesus, come to me. I need you. I want you. We've all been there. Maybe some of you in the room are right there right now where nothing is going right. Nothing is adding up. Nothing makes sense. You're just as confused as ever, if not before. And then you go to Jesus and it just keeps asking more. They keep happening. The intensity kind of just goes up. And we're like, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, what's going on here? when he's actually just right beside you. Because we forget at times that when Jesus comes close, his holiness comes too. Holiness is what sets you and I apart. It's basically, you've heard this before, if not, maybe it's new, that when you purify metal, silver, the impurities come up so they can be removed. That's what happened. When we asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, come on here. Come right beside me, sit at the table. He's purifying you at the same time. And these moments are happening that feel uncomfortable because you're not used to him actually probably being that close. It has strange because we all have gotten comfortable at a certain distance. But the closer he gets, the warmer things get. You see it in the conversation with these disciples. You see it where we forget holiness comes along with him and we become set apart. The closer Jesus, we are to him. The closer we are to his ways, And that's exactly what happened with these disciples. They were talking with them and their hearts literally were, it says earlier that it was slow to burn, slow to burn. But after their conversation, it was burning. So in John chapter one, he talks about the flesh, word becoming flesh, which is obviously Jesus. So the word of flesh was talking about the word with these two disciples. Jesus, in full glory, after his resurrection, was with these two disciples. They couldn't get any closer to the fire. They couldn't get any closer to him because it was actually a holy moment. No different when Jeremiah was talking about, you know, he, we know him as a weeping prophet. We know him as one who just, like, did all these things, talked about the judgment that was coming to Israelite people because they wouldn't get their act together. And that's all he was known for, just talking about exile that is coming. And he was tired of it. He told, Lord, I ain't doing this no more. I'm I'm never saying anything good. All I do is sell bad news to these people. But he makes this comment where he says, but there's a fire burning within me and I could not help but to say the words of the Lord because he's that close. There's a moment when, obviously, as you know, Moses with the burning bush The Lord cries out to Moses out of the burning bush. and Moses sees it and he goes to it. What's his remark? Take off your sandals for this is holy ground. When we get close, we start to change. And our flesh doesn't like it. The closer we get. So there was conviction. There was understanding. There was passion, motivation, and excitement being generated in their hearts and minds. The miracle of the resurrection was big, but they didn't say, wow, our hearts are burning because of the miracle of the resurrection. Rather, they are focused on the story of God, the scriptures, and Jesus as a fulfillment of the scriptures. And it was through that their hearts responded. Through that is how they responded. And they had a renewed sense of hope because of Jesus' explanation and his resurrection. Their hearts changed from being embers to flames, to being about to be put out, to be on on fire again. And they realized that their eyes had been closed, that they were blinded by false hopes and expectations. And that Jesus does bring the promised redemption of Israel. And the burning of the hearts is only a foretaste, which you will see at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down on the disciples in the room, in the upper room. So the secret to the burning heart is actually getting close to the fire itself. Jesus. That's the secret. The closer we get to the presence, the warmer our hearts become. Leaning into the scriptures and allowing the power of them to speak to us today. Because if we're really honest, sometimes we just read the Bible as if it was just a book. We look at it, we take the power away from the ink and just turn it into another novel that we put dust on, on the shelf. That there's actually power in the scripture. That we, there is a father, there is a, there is a son, there is a spirit who truly is among us that will bring power to his own words that will change us. Right off the gate in Revelation, John says, are any of those who read this is blessed. So, anytime you and I read the word, we are blessed and changed. But we need to lean into the power because there is still power in the name of Jesus. I don't know if you believe that or not this morning, but there is still power in the name of Jesus. There is still power in the name of his word that he is actually living. Some of you think he might be deceased, but he's not. That tomb is still empty today, and he is still active. And you might not see that in your own life because maybe the heart or the flame in you is slow. There's a man named Thomas Watson, and he says this leave not off reading the Bible till you find your hearts warmed. Read the word, not only as history, but labor to be affected with it. Let it not only inform you, but inflame you. It is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord. Jeremiah 23, 29. Go not from the word until you can say as those disciples, did not our hearts burn within us. Because the slowness of heart is a root from which dullness of mind concerning spiritual things springs forth. The disciples believed, but slowly and with a heavy heart. There was an element of reluctancy in their faith. And this is where Jesus found them. But their hearts were burning when he left. So he met them right where they were. Right in the middle of their ordinary day. And completely changed them. And as you can see in the last two couple of verses, where they had to leave that very same hour, just as they arrived and settled at Emmaus, they left. Again, another eight mile journey back to Jerusalem, and it's nighttime. They don't have flashlights, they don't have a car, they don't have a phone. It's just them going on a path. At night, another eight miles, which would probably take a long time to get back to. So they would arrive at night because they could not rest. Imagine you're burning so much on the inside, you couldn't help but to talk about it. You couldn't help but to go and tell the disciples. This is what they were thinking. They were in this room. They had to go back, no matter what, eagerly overwhelmed with joy at what just happened. I mean, I think you and I would too if Jesus was literally at the table and he just said, gone, and he vanished. We would be completely changed. We'd be talking about that moment for the rest of our lives. Anybody we met, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about Jesus sitting at my table and then the dude just left in thin air. We would be talking about it. But that wasn't the point. It wasn't about this extra spiritual moment, but it was about what he had done. Remember, they didn't believe. They just thought he was a prophet, not the Messiah. They hoped that he was, but he reoriented their hope because he was a Messiah that scripture pointed to. Isaiah, Ezekiel, all the minor prophets from Moses all the way through the whole narrative pointed to that moment when Jesus was on the cross. That's the Messiah who would come, who would flip the entire world, who would change everything. When we look at the cross, we may see something weak because a man is being pierced to it. But that's actually the most humble thing you could do. And that's what he did. He took on the form of a human being and become a man just so you and I could be saved because no one else could do it. Go read the scriptures. It will tell you. So they had to go tell the disciples. It becomes the duty of those whom he has shown himself to let others know what he has done for them and their souls. And we let other people know the experience we've had with God. In doing so, we do point to the cross and we point to Jesus. You have your own experience. You have your own story. And that's the good news. There's other people probably just like you who's probably been down a similar path who needs to hear your story to point to Jesus, to point to the cross where that redemption for you was met when you found him. That's the fire that they had. They had to go tell the disciples. Imagine them, they were the closest ones to him. And that like small little moment at the end where he said he peered to Peter. He peered to Peter. Only a few days earlier, Peter denied him. I don't know if you know much about Peter, but Peter was in the inner three, meaning he had probably more time than any of the other disciples. Out of the other two, out of the three years, he intimately had private spaces with our creator. He saw everything, not just some things, literally every waking moment he was there with Jesus. Yet, guess what? When Jesus needed him most, what did he do? He denied him. The man who walked with Jesus denied him. And what did Jesus do? What did he do? It says in here that he appeared to Simon. This is after his resurrection. Imagine how Peter maybe felt. How broken, how much of a failure that he let down God, literally. He let down Jesus. Denied it. But yet Jesus appeared to him. And we don't know what it's, the conversation was. We don't know what it hadn't happened in that moment. But I can tell you what, I bet Jesus was comforting him. I bet Jesus was just sitting there ready to forgive him. That's what strikes me is that he denied God, yet God was so quick to forgive him. Met him right where he was in his pain and being a failure, he appeared to him. It doesn't say he appeared intimately with any other disciples individually. Is that you? This morning? When's the last time maybe you just had a moment where you're like, Lord, I urge you to stay? Maybe you're someone in here whose heart is on the end of slow, where it's just embers, but you want the flame. You want that fire. You want that change. Maybe you're just, you feel like you're broken. Maybe you felt like you have failed him. Maybe you've done things that you feel like you can't tell him or own up to. Maybe you're someone in this room today who's just on the fence about who Jesus is and what he's done. Maybe you've been thinking about it and processing this person who we talk about every Sunday and why we talk about him. But yet it's because he meets us where we are despite what we have done to forgive us and save us. Not only saved us so we can have eternal life, that we can actually draw near. That we no longer have to go into a temple and provide a sacrifice once a year that only someone else could do. But you can go in yourself. You can walk in. As Hebrews says, enter in the throne room with confidence because what Jesus has done for us so this morning, as we've been talking about breaking of the bread, we're going to have these stations set up where you can go and get the bread from the table as this is a remembrance of Jesus. We'll have people on the side who's ready and available if you need prayer. But the other thing I want to do is I want to make space for the altar. This isn't like, unless you want to come to know Jesus, absolutely. Well, I just want to open it up because I believe at the altar, things do change. I believe some of us need another fire because the fire went out. I believe some of us is carrying too much on our backs because we feel like Jesus wouldn't take it, but he can take it right here. Some of us just need a moment to breathe. Why don't you meet him right here? It's not about anybody else because when you get to heaven, Ain't nobody going to be standing beside you. It's just you. So I invite you to come. I'm going to be right here with you. I ain't going to lie. I'm going to be right here at the altar. But whenever you're comfortable, whenever you're ready to go get from the cup and the bread, you're more than welcome to do so.